Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to have a conversation about the Toronto Raptors. They've had a historically great offense so far this year and a, a wonderful season just overall. And the person I wanted to talk to was Eric Corrine of The Athletic Toronto, an exciting outlet for The Athletic now. And so we have a conversation about their offense, what's moving forward, a little status update on all their young players, and apologies for this not having timestamps. The reason for that is because I edited this differently. I actually did it at Oracle before the Warriors game today, so I didn't have the chance to put in to put in all the timestamps, but conversation's about an hour. I also think that since things flow into each other relatively well, you'll want to listen to the whole thing, and I, I did really enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Sherry's Berries. You can go to berries.com and then use the promo code REALGM for some great offers, including a batch of berries, chocolatey berries for ninety for nineteen ninety nine, and you can double the berries for $10 more. Audible, you can go to audible.com slash try now, and you can get a, a free month's trial and an audiobook. And our old friends at Blue Apron, you can go to blueapron.com slash realgm, and you can get three meals for free on your first order. Here is the conversation with Eric Corrine. Thanks so much for coming on. Not a problem. The Raptors have been one of this season's biggest success stories. Not, not a surprise considering how well they played last year, but as somebody who follows this team closely, what is something that you think could be harder to appreciate for somebody who watches it from a little bit more of a distance? Just how good this offense is, despite it not being, and I'm using air quotes here, good in the way that sort of analytic-minded new age basketball fans would appreciate or want. It's not like always the pace and space, although they can do that a little bit with some smaller lineups. It's just the way that DeMar DeRozan gets to the free throw line, the way that he can start. I wrote about his floater today and how that developed. Kyle Lowry's sort of ability to create extra possessions under the net. Like a this team scores in such a variety of ways, and we're so used to, and rightly, celebrating the Golden State Warriors for their, you know, their passing and their sublime shooting, and, and the same way we used to talk about the San Antonio Spurs. But the Raptors are almost a hybrid of, of, of all of this. I wouldn't call them specifically old school, even though their assist rate is, is pretty low, and they do take the, a fair bit of mid-range jumpers. It's just the variety of ways they can score and can beat you, despite knowing that this offense is going through two players, more or less, Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan. If you don't watch a lot of games, you look at the offensive rating, and I think the Raptors are still ahead of the Warriors, and you're they like, how, how, can that, how can that possibly be? Uh, and I look at it, I've seen, you know, I think I might have missed one game so far this year, and I'm like, how is that possible? But it is, and that's because this team knows exactly what they're doing on that end, and each piece sort of knows where they fit. The general concept with why why teams like the with Mori Ball, if we want to want to say it that way, of you know threes and, and layups is I think a lot of it gets to the idea of sustainability. But yeah. there has always been an undercurrent with all of this, and this was a guy like Lamarcus Aldridge was an example of this for years. That if you are uncommonly good at 
mid-range shots, there is an intense value to it because every offense is going to get there at some points. Not every offense is going to get there as much as the Raptors, but if you can make those shots more often than other teams can, and it's sustainable, then you can build a really good offense out of it. And also, Toronto, like I think the, the way that they've been utilizing the three this year, a lot of guys are just having unbelievable years shooting threes, is another big part of their success. Yeah, and back to what you said about mid-range jumpers, like, this is what the book Moneyball is about, right? Like, it's not necessarily that on-base percentage is the most important statistic, although not making an out in baseball is a pretty good thing to try and do. But it's where the A's were able to find the most value based on the uh, on the money they were spending. And I think that's sort of what's happened to an extent with the Raptors' offense, not that they're necessarily controlled this way at the roster-building standpoint because, you know, DeMar DeRozan was already here and Kyle Lowry was already here, etc. But they have found that there are these holes in defenses that, you know, they want you taking those shots. And to start the year, certainly, DeMar DeRozan was hitting enough of those shots that the defense had to start to adjust. And you'll notice that even as DeRozan's mid-range percentage has gone down, as we all knew it would, like you don't continue to shoot 58% or whatever he was shooting on contested twos outside the paint. That doesn't happen. But as that's come down, the pressure on him in those areas hasn't really released. And that's leading to the Patrick Patterson threes, the Terrence Ross threes, the Corey Joseph is having a, a better year than he's ever had from three, even though he's far from a knockdown shooter still. Lowry's shooting, obviously, at an unsustainable rate right now from three, uh, but he's a pretty well-established 38, 39, 40% three-point shooter. It'll be interesting to see as the year goes on as if opponents pull away from all of that attention they were giving, they are giving DeRozan right now and sort of live with the drives and live with those clean twos that he was getting and start to stay home more on three-point shooters because this is the push and pull of of pretty much any offense but especially the Raptors offense which is working right now I don't think Terrence Ross is going to shoot 50 percent from three all year but I'm I'm willing to be wrong on that front Ross has also been as of the last time I checked it, which was Sunday, he is has been the most successful pull-up shooter in the entire league, which is <laughs> unbelievable. Like, he, he, he's a good player, and they're just sitting there going, okay, you know, maybe, maybe he has that more in his game than I ever expected, but those types of things can regress with time. Yeah, like, if you want a Raptors fan just to start arguing with himself or herself, just bring up the name Terrence Ross and see what happens. Like, the last four years have been... And this isn't to demean Terrence Ross. Like he's had a, you know, a grow, you know, you always hear old or you hear coaches talk about how for most young players, except for the true stars, it it takes a lot of time to find that consistency. And it's just that Terrence Ross has been maddeningly inconsistent. And now all of a sudden he's put everything together. That pull-up jumper, the floater. I saw him hit a floater on the baseline the other day. I don't even know that was in his game. He sometimes goes one or two shots too far into sort of his heat check, but you can't really begrudge him for that right now at all. And and as my colleague Blake Murphy wrote uh, today at Raptors Republic, I'm sorry, it was, it was Tuesday, not Wednesday that he wrote that. His defense has actually been the best thing about him, arguably. Well, it's hard to be 
better than a 50% three-point shooter. That's probably been the best thing about him. But his defense, his off-the-ball helping, his deflections and passing lanes have been consistent at the level that you could only hope in previous years. And you would see once a week, once every two weeks if you were lucky. And that ties in with one of the other major stories with this Raptors team. And it was totally true last year as well, which is that Dwayne Casey has gone to a sub-pattern that a few teams are following, though I don't think anybody's done it to the effect of the Raptors, which is those lineups with Kyle Lowry and four bench players, which have been... So very few bench lineups even make it into the top 30 most used lineups because each team has a starting five. But that Lowry plus bench guys, which as far as I know, unless you in Toronto already have a name that you want to share with everybody else, still needs a name. No, that- Zach Lowe was not complaining, but bringing this up as well. We need... We need a name for it. I, I don't have a good suggestion. Yeah, I mean, like, J- James I'm Herbert think, I'm said, the, like, Herbert said the Extinction Five, and I like that. Uh, yeah. But I'm still still working through it, still workshopping some stuff. But they've yeah. been the best five-man lineup in terms of net rating in the entire league so far this year, of the high-usage ones. Yeah, and again, it's the same as last year, except you replace Bismack Biombo with Lucas Nogueira, right? Like, it's the... It's, uh, it's the same thing, the same idea. Everybody's filling the same role. Corey Joseph, you know, can take some of the ball handling load off of Lowry when he's on that floor and give Lowry, you know, some more opportunities to spot up or run around screens. Uh, Terrence Ross is the pretty much stay home, wait for the ball to come to you and then take a three pointer or pump fake and, you know, take one dribble and shoot or move the ball. Patrick Patterson, who's, you know, I, I can probably at some point write a very long essay about how somebody with a 12 or 13 player efficiency rating, I haven't checked what it is this year, but that's what it tends to be, can be one of the most valuable players on on an entire team, and not only an entire team, but one of the best teams in the league. He sort of brings it all together with his combination of switching on defense, his you know really savvy, smart defense, his defensive communication, his shooting ability, and his just knowledge of when the shot is there and when he should just simply swing the ball. And Lucas Nguera, Bebe, uh, who, you know, has sort of been looked up as a joke for ever since he was drafted and couldn't get his, his I think he was drafted by Boston before being moved to Atlanta and couldn't get his hat on, on that huge mop of sideshow bob hair. You know, he's been a joke ever since and he's been injured and he's like a painfully confessional quote. He'll tell you what's ever on his mind. He's come in and with those arms that, you know, go on forever, he can credit. He's not the shot blocker or lateral defender that Biombo is, but he get, brings some of that disruption that Biombo does. So it's basically a lineup that's functioning exactly as it did last year, except in Nuguera, you now have a guy whose hands are better than Biombo's. So if there's a screen roll possibility and your screener and there's a lob possibility there, you have somebody who can finish it more reliably than Biombo. And that's not to knock Biombo because he was great last year for the Raptors. Offensive players, particularly passers, love it so much when they can when they can make those passes and expect that bad things won't happen. Because one of the most frustrating things watching the watching the league the Warriors have been a great example of that this year for players who are very good is when they make the right play and it doesn't work out especially when it's not when it's not like the defense did a great job and so Biombo is excellent you know his defense his switchability every everything last year like he was a, a, a key part of their success 
But just that basic thing of reliable hands can make a world of difference for the sanity of the passers on the team. It's funny. If you watch like Corey Joseph, but especially Lowry, because Lowry had some sort of chemistry with Nuguera last year while Jonas Valanciunas was out. He was the guy who was playing with him more in those in those sort of lineups. If you watch Lowry throw those lobs, it's like he's pushing himself further and further just to see how high he can throw them and like what the right threshold is for trying to find that pass. And the thing about Nogueira is he can catch the ball on the move and he's actually a really great passer for a big man. I don't mean to make this a, you know, a 15 minute diatribe on how good Lucas Nogueira is. I'm fine like with his, it. Totally uh, fine his, with it. Cause he's not that good. He like, I mean, but, he he's, the best but he's good at what this team yeah. needs. And exactly. that, along uh, the lines of Patrick Patterson, we always yeah, they're focus... they're just players who fit. Yeah, yeah. like we, we always focus on the idea of, oh, the best possible player, you know, maximizing, if you want to put it in 2K terms, the overall rating. But that's only a part of the story. You want players who can do it. And, and the downside of that is if, in the case of injury, but the Raptors have done a good job when they've dealt with stuff this year, just like they did last year. Yeah, Look, this is a team that is rightly built around two very dynamic scoring guards, but you need releases for them because they want to get into the paint. Both of them do. I mean, Lowry's a high-volume three-point shooter, but that's all based on his ability to sort of use his, as they call it, his bowling ball-type body to get into the lane and, and get a layup. DeRozan obviously lives to get fouled, whether that's a pump fake on the perimeter or a drive to the rim. That's what they want. But that doesn't work if the lane is entirely clogged up. So you need somebody with hands who can roll and at least create separation for the for the ball handler to pull up if he needs to or find that pass. And you need three-point shooters. And, you know, Patterson goes hot and cold, but he'll end up, you know, 35, 36, which is fine. And you have Ross, who's now one of the better three-point shooters in the league, and if Joseph develops a bit, let's say they add one more three-point shooter at the trade deadline, and they have Jared Sullinger, remember, who's been injured. Like, maybe that's the guy. Maybe that's all they need to turn what's been an average starting lineup into a an effective one. Maybe not as effective as this Lowry, as the extinction lineup, but uh, one that isn't so reliably average as it's been so far. Well, something substantially better than reliably average are Sherry's Berries. I've been lucky enough to try them myself. They are some spectacular, decadent, chocolatey berries. And that's not the only thing they sell. You can go to berries.com and then there's a little microphone in the top right corner. You can type in the code REALGM, should be familiar to listeners of Real GM Radio. You can check out everything else, but their trademark deal, which is something I got to try for myself, is a... $19.99 box of Sherry's Berries, and you can double the berries for an extra $9.99. And they're excellent. They're chocolatey berries dipped in uh, white milk and dark chocolate, and usually with a topping on it like chocolate chips or nuts. And those are great. You can also check out, they have cheesecake, cake pops, I think they have brownie pops, just a lot of other things of that ilk. Again, you go to berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S, dot com and you use the the promo code real jam with the microphone you can see all the other offers that they have out there 
And one of the things that I, I'm really impressed with with Cherry's Berries is that you can pick a delivery date, because as you would expect with something based on a natural product, you want to know that it gets delivered on the right day, the right time. For many of you, that could be Christmas. For others of you, that could be another time. They're appropriate for all sorts of other occasions. So you can schedule that, and you can make, make your purchase, find something you like, and then schedule it moving forward. And something I'm really excited about a first time thing. I talked about this a little bit last week with Sherry's Berries is that they're actually doing a promotion with us. We talked about an idea and I really liked what we came up with, which is kind of a best and worst in terms of basketball Christmas gifts. We're kind of trying to keep it on the NBA, but it can be overall. And so the best way to do it is actually to email me, NBA at gmail.com. And it can, it's a, a story or it can be short. It doesn't have to be long about your best or your worst basketball gift, ideally that you received, but if you if you said it, I'll consider it as well. And you can also, if you prefer, you can tweet it using the hashtag MyBestNBAGift or MyWorstNBAGift, and the best submissions on the positive side and the negative side will get gift cards for Sherry's Berries worth $50. So not in a small sum at all, so you can submit now. I don't have a hard deadline on it. It's going to probably be sometime in the next, I don't know, week or so, just trying to figure out logistics in terms of how many submissions and everything like that. But you should check out berries.com and the promo code RealGM in the little box. You can see what they have. And then if you have a best or worst gift, you can reach out to me. I appreciate it. And you can support the show and try out an awesome new product that I've been lucky enough to try myself. Now back to the conversation with Eric Kareen. Reliably average is, is a good way of putting it, and I've liked what Siakam has brought to this team, but it is true that you could add a different dimension offensively with someone like Sullinger, who yeah. who can do well if you can train him mentally to do it. He can do well giving him a smaller role and saying, this is what you do, do it really well. Yeah, and we're still a month away from even thinking about Sullinger coming back. So wow, it's, it's if, still that long. Wow. Dwayne Casey the other day said four to five weeks. They said at least two months at the start of the year. So that would be the end of December. So they've obviously, but it was at least two months. And that's, you know, I always get mad as a reporter, like, why are you being so vague with your timelines? But now you're going to go past the minimum timeline that they gave. And first of all, I, I could be wrong. I'm not, I don't remember the press release word by word. So it's possible that what I'm saying was a minimum timeline was just something that was reported. But my understanding of it was it was going to be somewhere between two and three months from the end of October. Uh, and this is why teams hate giving them out. Like I, I chafe against it because it's like, listen, we don't have to guess and we don't have to and fans don't have to be frustrated if you just keep people abreast of what's going on. And if you know, Jared Sollinger has a setback or Damari Carroll has a setback last year. I think people are reasonable enough to understand that sometimes these things happen when you're dealing with very complicated injuries and very large, uh, like, you know, all NBA players are big humans. Like even the small ones, for the most part, are big humans. So things can go wrong. And with uh, I'm not saying anything has gone wrong with Sollinger and his foot injury. I, I have no evidence of that. But this is... So in the team's defense is my way of saying, I get why they can be sort of vague, because do you really want all the fans on Twitter yelling, 
the medical staff doesn't know what it's doing. I mean, like, think about how that reputation sort of sullied what happened in Portland 10 years back or whatever. Well, so yeah, anyway, this it, is a diatribe. This it, is a diatribe. It's, it's a no-win situation. Yeah. I, I, I got more into that with the idea of somebody who used to play fantasy football of like, you know, there's a lot of pressure in that way as well of making sure that people know what's going on. But that's not the obligation of a coach or a medical staff. Their job is yeah. to make sure the player is healthy. And you also have, as much as it's a smaller issue than a guy being out longer than expected, if you are yeah. overly cautious and say a long timeline and somebody comes back earlier, then they go, oh, well, what about, what about this? And then if they get re-injured, then it's like, oh, you rushed back. it back. And the fundamental problem with all of injury stuff, injury reporting, is that there is no perfect solution because... Yeah. If everything works perfectly, then it's fine, but there are setbacks, there are false starts, there are parts of the human body that take longer to recover for specific players than for others. And yeah. so you just get into these circumstances, and I think the most important thing that needs to happen is an overall understanding that while medicine is, is a very important science, medical reporting is still a little bit of an inexact science. And, and especially when sports reporters are doing it, you know, right. like I, yeah. I, tr I try my damnedest and I try to learn and when I can consult a doctor with like this type of injury, I do it. But like, I still got, you know, 70 in grade 11 biology. <laughs> and, and it's also, it's also hard because sometimes similar looking or similar feeling yeah. injuries are different to different people. So you can get an equilibrium because usually on these, we're dealing with a small enough sample that you're, you have to base your experience or your understanding on a few cases. And maybe that guy was younger. Maybe that guy was more resilient. And so then you start thinking about it with a different player and go, oh, yeah. And that the same the same thing has happened like with all the Jones fractures that happened around the yeah, league. So it's yeah. like okay, you start to get into that place, and then one guy like I think it was like Jody Meeks came back way later than a lot of other guys, and then other guys come back earlier, and it's like oh yeah, that's that's what an injury is, you know, it's that sort of thing. But you can get into the general scope like we're doing all the stuff with Nate has made me understand about the the nature of muscle injuries in in the legs and the the, the risk of re injury, which I also remember back from from when I actually was athletic and played things. But yeah, it's, um, it's, I guess, it's, it's imperfect. On. Yeah, I, you know, from my, I have a bias and I would like to see teams err on the side of transparency. Sure. Just because, I mean, it would help me, <laughs> first of all, most importantly, I would argue. But I'd like to think that people are reasonable enough to understand that things happen and there are no perfect comparisons and there are no guarantees but maybe they aren't reasonable enough, you know, like, uh, and maybe anyway, it's, we're getting off off topic, uh, but, yeah, but it's, it's uh, a topic but, but, I'm interested in. And I can see why, why teams sort of have this dilemma with themselves. And, and I'm sure there are people who argue for more transparency and people who argue for less transparency. And I can see both sides of it, even though I would argue for more transparency, because I want to believe that people are smart and reasonable and can understand complicated things well enough to digest that you know their player that they want to come back isn't coming back for three weeks longer than originally reported agreed and that ties in with where i wanted to go next which is that even without sullinger the raptors last year i think they were right around 10th in offensive rebounding and now they're all the way up to 7th they only really have two guys from what I've seen that have been that are really singularly active on the offensive glass. Valanciunas is number one, and then Bebe does a pretty good job as well. 
Is that something that you think is a, a central part of this team's success or a little bit more ancillary? It contributes to the offense, for sure. Siakam, I know he, he, he also has his moments on the offensive glass, too. I feel bad that we didn't talk about Siakam when he, when he came up sort of casually. He probably shouldn't be in an, one of the best teams' rotations right now. He is because of the injury, and they'll be better off, assuming Jared Sollinger is healthy. Saying all that, for the 27th pick to come in and you know get in where he fits in, more or less, and provide him 15 useful minutes a game, that's not nothing. That's a lot because rookies often flail in this league and I don't see a guy flailing. That's obviously has a lot to do with what's going on around him and the little that's being asked of him, but he's basically executing. Is offensive rebounding central to what they do? Dwayne Casey being defensive-minded, as you would guess, is not big on offensive rebounds. He prizes transition defense almost above all else and getting set. And obviously the ball going through the basket as often as it does helps you get set. But I think they they have... And so they're certainly not going to want guys to crash beyond your Lucas Neguera and Jonas Valanciunas. They don't want like their wings really crashing unless there's an obvious opportunity for it. But it is a key part in in how they're creating, you know, longer possessions, more possessions. And we know once an offensive, once you get an offensive rebound, like there's a putback possibility. There are open threes that are there because the whole defense has crashed to try and get the rebound. So I think it's an important thing that they're doing, but I, I wouldn't say it's like, a focus of what they're doing. It's just sort of happening because of the talented players they have. I really like their approach in this way because they're getting as close as you can to doing the duality, which is such a a hard thing for a lot of teams to manage with offensive rebounding and transition defense. And so the other extreme, well, not the other extreme, but another extreme with this is New Orleans. So New Orleans plays two bigs, uh, they play bigger than than Toronto does usually because Anthony Davis is the four. They've basically decided to just not have anybody on the offensive glass. They're the they're the weakest offensive rebounding team in the league, but they've been good in transition defense. Toronto has been able to realize, okay, well, if we get four guys back, we're probably fine. You know, if we get four guys back, we're going to do it. And if Valanciunas can get an offensive rebound, then we can work with that. And I think that's the end game for most teams. There will always be exceptions. Oklahoma City has had some success. And Chicago this year has been ridiculous on the offensive glass. But I think what Toronto, the way that they're approaching it of like, transition defense is far more important. But if an offensive rebounder, if we have a talented guy, we might as well use that gift, is about where this should end up. Yeah, and the defensive problems that they're having, for the most part, they don't have a lot to do with transition defense. Like, that's... Basic, you know, contain the ball and rim protection when Jonas is on the floor type issues. It's it's not transition defense. They're fine in that. I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers lately, but it hasn't. This is completely eye test stuff, but it hasn't struck me in more than one or two games as, wow, this team's really not getting back. And if they're not getting back, I don't think it's because they're crashing. I think it's because they're on a back-to-back or they're sluggish for whatever reason. Of course, this, you know, the only teams the Raptors have lost to this year are the Clippers, Warriors, and Cavs, and then the Sacramento Kings twice, who always beat them because, you know, NBA. <laughs> um, so they don't have many sluggish nights is what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, I think I, they've been responsible with it. You know, they're, 
they're playing to their talent and the coach prioritizes defense and he should continue to do so because that's been weaker than the offense so far. And if there is a major problem in transition defense, he, I'm sure Dwayne Casey and his coaching staff will emphasize how important it is to get back and maybe pull the reins a bit tighter on their, on the two centers, but it's not an issue right now. One of the things that I love most about having some of the sport view synergy data public, because it's on some of it is on stats.mba, yeah. is that w- w- sometimes the best stat is not effectiveness, it's frequency. And so I've been looking the whole year at how well, how, how basically the proportion of possessions that in a, a team's opponents get in transition early in the season, early year, early ish. The Raptors were top one or two. They were, you know, up there with the Pelicans. I talked about how they're just getting back. That's all they're doing. Yeah, they're a little bit lower now. They're a little bit, you know, they that's gotten there, but it's still they're still in the top half. And I think oh, some of that is those games where they're just a little bit off. When I watch them every once in a while, they can get they get snuck by on a possession or two, and that's certainly fine. But and, they're striking they're striking the balance, as I said before, and. And and just to to creep in there, their defense is actually getting better as the season has gone on. So, like, any correlation between getting – again, that goes back to what I was saying. Like, their defensive struggles and getting back in transition seem to be unrelated right now for the most part. They they are, and they've shown a consistency in approach. So sometimes sometimes execution can be wanting just with the way that an NBA season goes. That's one of the biggest changes with having or challenges with having an 82 game season. I firmly firmly believe that if the NBA went to a 60 something game season, some of the weird inconsistencies and spurts that we see would go away. Just some of Uh, it would stay. Yeah, Yeah, some of it would stay. There's just too many. I mean, basketball is an intricate enough game and humans are unreliable enough that we would still see plenty of them. But yeah, I, I could see some things getting slightly more stable. Maybe that's as far as I'm willing to go right now. <laughs> I've been consistently impressed with how well that Lowry plus bench unit has defended is from what, like their personnel is good, you know, especially when they're going against second units and they have so much offensive talent too. How would it theoretically, and obviously I'm not saying it's their best five or anything like that. That's why context is so important. But how do you think that group would fare if they played more minutes against starters or starter, starter heavier units? They'd suffer a bit. You know, I think that goes without saying. I think Terrence Ross, I mean thing is like if terrence ross is guarding a big three like the type of player they signed to marry carroll to defend then that's problematic now if you put norm powell in for terrence ross then it helps a bit but then you know you're losing a little bit on the other end although can't believe we've we're gone to the half hour mark and haven't even talked about raptors called hero norm powell yeah um, so i think they could withstand it a bit but i think Bebe would probably get exposed a little bit more with with you know the very best pick and roll guards and players in the league and, and, so, and so would Patterson. I mean, Patterson's a guy, not the greatest pick-and-roll guy, and teams can exploit that a lot better with their starting five. Yeah, he tends to be one of the guys I worry about least. Like, he figures it out. He should, I mean, you don't change anything right now, because why would you? But there's an argument you can make that he should be starting and just, like, coming out earlier and then coming back in to start the second quarter. 
with that same lineup so you're not losing the Lowry plus Blanche lineup. But when you're playing as well as they are, like it's not an argument I feel passionately about well, making right the now. Re- the, reason yeah. that, the reason that you consider that, and I would try it, I'm not saying go to it yeah. all the time, is just to see how it is because a team like the Raptors will have to change up their rotations in the playoffs anyway. Yeah, it happened last year, right? Like yeah. They started Scola all year, and then Patterson was starting, I think... I don't remember when he started starting in that series, if it was game somewhere in the middle of that I series. I thought it was... I think, yeah. Like, you just want to know you can do it. But also, Patterson, the most effective three-man unit in the league right now, is, in terms of net rating, is Lowry, DeRozan, Patterson. So he can play with those guys. He's a lot of history playing with Jonas. So what are you really worried about? The five-man as a total? Like, the five-man unit as a total? You find, like, even without starting, I think you can find minutes to attempt that. Like you, I wouldn't mind seeing it every so often just to start the game because it does change up your rotation patterns. But I'm not, again, I like they're playing so well. I'm not very passionate about, like, them doing it right now, especially as they try to keep Siakam's head above water. And there's really no compelling reason they're not getting buried at the start so they don't really need to change that right now we'll be back to the conversation shortly but first a quick word from our friends at audible like you i'm a little bit dumbfounded that we haven't talked about norm powell yet i'm a big fan of his have been for a long time and one challenge for him especially with the way that terrence ross has developed is that he is at moments a man without a country just in terms of the cons- yeah. like the, the normal lineups in this, but he is certainly a really good basketball player for what yeah. he is, and I think he can get better too. Yeah, I wrote about this uh, the other day, uh, I think Sunday or Monday for The Athletic. I was trying to find him minutes, basically. Like, what do you do? You go down, like, do you cut one of the stars' minutes or both of the stars' minutes and and, and let them play less? just in order to get Norm in the game more? Do you cut Terrence Ross's minutes and he's having a career year? Do you, on merit, what you would do maybe is like limit Corey Joseph or Damari Carroll's minutes, but Joseph is effective in those lineups, obviously with with Lowry and the bench. And Damari Carroll is a long-term play. Like this is a team that's good enough to be thinking toward the playoffs and be thinking toward matching up with you know, Paul George or Carmelo Anthony or LeBron James. And they know that, you know, if Carroll is right, he's still the best option. So you don't want to just bury him because right now he's not as effective as a player as Norm Powell is. Uh, The thing they could do is go small more regularly. And that's to play without a, either without a true center and with Patterson at center or without a true poor power forward and and use some like DeRozan Ross Powell combinations or 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 DeRozan 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 Powell Powell, Carroll yeah something like that you could do that a bit more we have seen it at the end of games we saw it in the at the end of the Boston game which Damari Carroll didn't play in and that was because he's still not playing in back-to-backs and Jonas Valanciunas was getting roasted by Al Horford so we saw some of those lineups I don't think it's what Dwayne Casey wants to do. But I mean, if you're looking right now to play your nine best players, Powell is better than Pascal Siakam. But again, not a priority because things are going so well. 
Yeah, you, is, you you want to use yeah. the regular season as a lab just to see how everything yeah. works and to keep everyone happy, which is another important dynamic in this. And I, I haven't. Sorry, that's where Powell deserves a ton of credit. Yes, like, that's where I was going. That, yeah, like he's Mister Stay Ready. Like like, and uh, every time we talk to him, it's like, how hard is it to stay ready? And he's like, well, not very. Like I understand what's going on with the team, and this is where you get into the cliches about you know staying ready in a four year player at UCLA and maturity and you know there are lots of players who can come out of those situations and still be immature and he's not and that's a credit to him he is a good basketball player man like he would be in almost I think every rotation in this league I I I know it's weird to say about 46 pick in the draft I think it was 46 or 44 can't remember now but like which rotation in the league doesn't he crack right now other than the Raptors, you know, like there aren't many. It's a great point. And it's also true that it's a lot easier to take that when your team is playing so well, you know, yeah. it, it can yeah. be, it can be really frustrating. There are players that gripe all the time when their team is losing and they're saying, I can make our team win because losing is something that really grates players. I did, I did this long story. Occasionally I do these once a year about, I don't know if I'm going to do one this year. I do these week in a life stories where I basically, talk to a player for five or seven minutes every day for a week or it doesn't have to be a player last year it was an assistant coach but um i did one on chuck hayes a few years ago with the raptors and he was in a similar position like he was behind valanchunas who was starting and then they would use amir johnson or tyler hansborough as sort of the default backup center and Hayes would really only get into the game when there was like a Mark Gasol to cover or like a or Al Jefferson to cover, like a true post threat, of, which we both know are getting, you know, that number is shrinking uh, around the league. And I asked him, like, is it frustrating for you not to play? And he said, well, we're good. Like, <laughs> it was frustrating when I was in Sacramento and I couldn't play because, like, why aren't you trying something else, coach? But when it's in Toronto and you're, you know, this is your fourth straight good year and you seem to be picking up basically where you left off, if not at a better place from last year, which was the franchise's best season in history, Powell doesn't really have any place to complain except if you want to pick nets. And he is not the type to pick nets right now. And that's extremely, you know, that's where chemistry matters and maturity matters and has value. Like, I, I truly believe in that. Along with many other people who enjoy making fake trades, one of the ones that has been floated around for seemingly years now is the idea of getting a, a, a really strong power forward to the Raptors. It's a little bit different now that they drafted Jakob Pertl just because when they had that draft pick, you're like, oh, they can throw that draft pick and something else. And yeah. get blah, blah, blah. Do you think that there is a potential avenue for? I'm thinking of the the potential free agents because of their the Toronto's cap situation, but Serge Ibaka, Paul Millsap, or is it just not not? I'm not gonna say not worth it, but maybe not as not as obvious a play because of how successful they've been already. You know, Millsap, I explore. Millsap's really good. You know, that's a top 25, top 30 player in the league. He has a bit of a relationship with Damari Carroll, so maybe you think you can you can keep him. It's definitely, and if you're worrying about, like, Kyle Lowry's prime, which you should be worrying about, like, he's probably going to get another big contract from this team, but he's 30, turning 31, and even if he didn't play that much at the beginning of his career, you can only defy the general curve of a player of a, of a player for so long. Like I think 
he might be able to extend his prime longer than most, but he, at the very the very best, he's in the middle of his prime, and you would have to assume he's past the middle of his prime. If you're worried about you know capitalizing on that, then yeah, you, you look at that sort of trade. But what is it going to cost you? You know, salaries have to line up, and you're looking at you know probably Patterson and Joseph just because those are two very malleable contracts right now, as well as good players and. Then you know draft picks and one of Powell or Ross, so it's a lot to give up. You're giving up a lot of like the depth that makes you who you are. Is Paul Millsap worth it? He might be. Is Serge Ibaka worth it? Probably not. If you think you have a chance at being a player for him in free agency, like uh, like Millsap, or you know if you want to get into a Boogie Cousins conversation, which I think we all think Boston can trump anything if they want. So. It's probably not worth much of a conversation. Millsap's worth thinking about, and that's as much as I'd say. Like, I don't even know if I would do it, but he's worth thinking about. Millsap's an amazing player, and with all of those, you have to think and talk openly with them about where they're going in the future. I mean, this is a part of trades that we always kind of undersell just because the open lines of communication are not open to us, but... You have to have it with that understanding because the Raptors would be giving up so much if that were not the case. You know, you you don't pay for a rental in in their situation. You you know, you don't pay for a starter rental. You could maybe get a, a backup if you wanted to, but they're deep anyway. And if you can do that, it's it, it's fine. And I I've been cracking up a little bit to myself, and part of this was covering Team USA with Lowry being an All NBA player, being an unquestioned All Star this year being an unrestricted free agent this summer because he's going to decline his player option. And yet there's really not much drama around it because it certainly seems like the expectation is that he's going to come back to Toronto, especially considering they re-signed DeRozan. And those guys are legitimately close. Like you hear the stories and all that. Seeing it with Team USA, those guys, when, when, there's a, a, when there is a universe of other guys that they don't get to spend much time with on the thing, they're still sticking together. Yeah, they, they and that took time, like... You know, it was Lowry and Rudy Gay who had who had ties from Memphis during the eleven month period where Rudy Gay was in Toronto. That wonderful eleven month period. Yes, and I think that just happens over time, and they're sort of not very similar personalities. Like Kyle's opened up a bit, certainly, but he's he's a bit of a curmudgeon at times. I think is fair to say, and and a little cantankerous and ornery, as sort of his playing style would indicate <laughs> um, and DeRozan is more open but also laid back and and a calmer guy and they have formed this bond that comes with playing together for four years and you know watching kids grow up their kids grow up you know together or close enough and and having the best success of their lives the best professional success of their lives together you know in no small part because of each other uh, they really like each other. Is there a scenario where Lowry leaves? Sure. Like this whole thing could, you know, we saw how quickly the Raptors got good. I suppose it could get bad that quickly again, but it's tough to look around the league and see what scenario Kyle Lowry would see as more appealing than the one that Toronto will offer him. We're getting, you know, this is about this season right now. And if they flame out in the first round, then maybe we're having a different conversation. But it just it's so far away from that time wise and like it's hard not to have a lot of confidence in this team right now. They're not, you know, some advanced metrics will have them as like the best team in the league right now. I 
say this is still Golden State and Cleveland's league, and you know you probably take the Clippers ahead of the Raptors too, and maybe the Spurs. But this is one of the five best teams in the league. You know, like there aren't many much more appealing situations. As I say that on the coldest day of the year so far, <laughs> looking out the window and hearing the wind bluster. Anyway going to take a brief second to tell you about Blue Apron, the fantastic food delivery service and purveyor of cooking confidence, which is something that I've really taken away from it. And over the course of having Blue Apron for months now, I think even maybe close to a year, the great food with fresh ingredients is certainly a selling point. But for my own purposes, getting more confident in the kitchen has been an excellent experience and a wide variety of dishes from Moroccan food to making sauces. It's actually something that's been a highlight recently. Made a great sauce on some po'boys. And I really do look forward to it every single week. Just got a delivery shortly before recording this with a new pasta dish that I've never made before and then an interesting spin on burgers. And so I'm excited to make and eat both of those. And Blue Apron serves so many different purposes with one amazing product. So if you want to get better at cooking, you want to learn new recipes, you can do that with Blue Apron. If your focus is trying new food and eating good food with fresh ingredients that are locally sourced, Blue Apron is great for that too. And they're not mutually exclusive. They all add up to a great package, but whatever makes you interested in it is a great way to start. And for me, that was really the, the tasting food, but I really have appreciated cooking. And so you can try Blue Apron for yourself. You go to blueapron.com slash real GM, and you can get three meals for free on your first order. And that includes free shipping, which I think is a great way to try it out. Hopefully you like it as much as I do. And again, you go to blueapron.com slash real GM Build your own cooking confidence. Eat some great food with fresh ingredients in the process. So Lowry, <laughs> Lowry is thirty now. He'll turn thirty-one before the end of the regular yeah, season in March. Yeah, in March. Would you? So let's say you're Masai Ujiri for this for this one minute. Would you have any pause giving him a big long-term contract like we expect that he will ask for and get somewhere, whether it's with Toronto or somewhere else? I think I, you have to think about it and crunch some numbers and talk and gather as much information as possible because it is a point guard, you know, who plays a physical style from years 31, probably through 36, right? Like that's, that's dicey proposition, but what are your alternatives? And this guy's the heartbeat of your team. Like, so I would have some pause, but I don't think that moment would last very long. I think you need this guy around. He's the rising tide of this team that, you know, lifts all boats. As much as I think what DeRozan's evolution has been amazing, Lowry's the guy, right? Like, I don't think there's much argument about that. Not for me. Plus, yeah. you have the the idea of, of rise and that you want to keep this going. And there is truth to the idea that this will not last forever, just like any team. No matter yeah. no matter who we're talking about, they're they're always going to ebb and flow, except for the Spurs, who are just going to win forever. And yeah. that you you have to ride that as long as you can. And there will be some probably some bad years on the end of that contract if it comes out like I expect it to. Yeah. But that's fine, you know. And also, like he he's the type of guy that will fight against that because he wants people like you and me to say, "No, oh, you want to see the bad years on the end of this contract? I'll show you them." Now, there's only so much you can do to prevent that yeah. from happening. Spirit, spirit can only go so you, far, but you, spirit can help. Yeah, 
it can help is what I'm saying. And yeah. I think, you know, that plus the sort of low mileage at the beginning of his career will probably help. But yeah, and to say that, like, they have Terrence Ross and they found Norman Powell and they have like a nice piece in Lucas Negrera and they have Jonas Valanciunas, which is, you know, a point of contention right now. Like they have other pieces. It's not like this team is poised to fall off the table. Like, do you want to take a step back into the middle, like into the back four playoff seeds? Like, I think Kyle Lowry, like bringing them back gives you a chance to stay where you are as, you know, the second or third best team in the conference for at least another two years, if not longer. And then we're getting up to that 5% rule, you know, like you've got a shot. Not, not like, you know, I don't think they're winning the championship, but weirder things have happened. You know, maybe you luck into that Dallas Mavericks season. And that's why defining success is so important. And I, I believe that the Raptors, even if they don't win a title with this group, making the which they probably won't, they probably like, won't making the yeah. conference finals, being a consistently relevant team is something that 25 to 20, like somewhere around 25 NBA franchises would be thrilled with, you know, like yeah. that, that if that is your spot for five years, great. You have fans that can be invested in your team all the time. And you always have that puncher's chance. If you give yourself that chance a couple of years in a row, you never know. And they're not at the same level as maybe that Pistons team that kept on knocking at the wall and eventually won a championship, but they can do that. And but, like, I sort of think of it as I thought about the Pacers a few years ago, like were those like Paul George, George Hill, Roy Hibbert, David West teams a failure. Like I thought like some of those series against the Miami Heat were like really like the LeBron Heat were super compelling and those teams have a lot to be proud of and and for like 3 years they gave like a super team the stiffest challenge this side of San Antonio, you know. Yeah, and and they gave their fans a consistently relevant squad to root for and and everything like that, and it's great. I I fully in support of that. And if you have the chance to retool, like if somebody makes a mistake of a trade, and the Raptors have benefited from some mistake trades in the past, then you can exploit that. But those opportunities have to present themselves. And the other reason why you retain Lowry is because after signing DeRozan, they don't really have the payroll flexibility to add in somebody else. So they're going, yeah. they're going for a bigger drop-off. I have absolutely zero problem, even if he does you know, get worse over the course of that contract and Father Time is undefeated, with that nature of it. And also, he's somebody who I think will work hard to, to combat that. And it does really matter because sometimes players, once they get that big contract at the end of their career, they just kind of are okay with receding. I don't yeah. think Kyle Lowry's going to be that guy. I don't think he has that in him. I'd be I'd be very surprised if that's the way it went. Like maybe maybe injuries got the better of him. Who knows? But I don't see uh, an off switch to that guy. A couple quick things before we go. Young players on this team that aren't really getting much in terms of minutes. What have you thought about Jakob Pertl so far? He's been fine. He has great hands. Still needs to put on some muscle for sure to be able to do the types of things that Jonas can do on the glass. Kind of bit defensively awkward, but he's skilled. He's you can see the skills. Not much information to go on, but I'm. Um, it's just it's such an interesting situation where Pascal Siakam's picked twenty seventh and he's playing more than the guy they picked ninth, but that's obviously totally situational. Yeah, that's a skilled skilled big man who I think is going to be just fine. And 
the way that Noguera has played, you know, that they got into a good circumstance where they don't need Pirtle to be that right away and they can develop him a little bit more slowly. Yeah, it's it's, fun. it's funny. Like, I think the same thing about DeLon Wright. He's slowly making his way back from a shoulder injury he suffered in summer league. And he recently responded to, I don't even know if he, he must have been responding to a lot of people on on Twitter, uh, like, are basically calling him bad. He's like, no, there's a difference between being bad and being stuck behind two pretty good players, you know? And it's the same situation with Pirtle. Like, Valanchunas and Neguera bring different things, but they're both valuable NBA pieces. And you don't need either of those guys, Pirtle or DeLon Wright, to, to step in right now. I, I always sort of wonder what happens to those players' value if it extends over a few years, as it might like right now if you're looking at Wright's situation. But who knows? From what I'm told, Dylan Wright still has plenty of value, and I'm, when I've seen him play, the sm- it hasn't been this year. I think that that kid is is smart and crafty, and is going to be make a fine NBA point guard. It can hurt because you just don't get to see it. Yeah. It's not the yeah. biggest thing in the world, and the Raptors are good enough that I don't think they need to concern it too much. Yeah. Bruno Caboclo! I think it was John Schumann who said that Pascal Siakam passed him in career NBA minutes in like Siakam's fifth NBA game. Yeah. So, uh, I can't say I've been at the D-League in Mississauga, which is a Toronto suburb, a lot this year, Blake Murphy would probably be the better person to ask about Caboclo. I did a big story on him earlier in the preseason. We don't know. And we're probably a bit pessimistic at this stage. Like, they're still wondering if, like, power forward or the wing, as much as those things don't matter anymore, they're still really wondering what the right spot is for his length and, and how he can have the biggest defensive impact. I think his. He just had so little experience coming into this. His instincts and his basketball IQ are just so far behind where you need them to be right now. There's far too little information for me to give a definitive answer. I just know from people I talk to that, you know, maybe not expect if there's like three or four injuries that happen, Kaboko to come in and be really good. Like one of those nice stories. I, I don't think that's going to happen right now. That's totally fair. Absolutely. And And that was a flyer. Like they, they knew they were in a decent situation. Yeah. And they wanted to take a chance on the guy that kind of looks like Giannis Antetokounmpo, you know, like, and, and Masai really wanted Giannis that year, that first year couldn't get him. And I think that's what good teams do. Like, especially like good teams who know they're not going to, you know, get the LeBron or whatever, be in those conversations and free agency and like the biggest conversations, although they did get a, a meeting with LaMarcus Aldridge a few years back. But until they're there, you got to try and occasionally swing with those picks. And they swung. And I say the odds are they're going to miss. But and it was it was in the twenties too. Yeah, it was like twenty. Like, like who 20. cares? You, you swing and miss in the twenties. It's very different than doing so in the in the single digit picks. And then they, you know, a year later they hit with Norm Powell at forty six or whatever. So it's cool, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's fine. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, this is my long way of saying I don't know. There seems to be tilting toward pessimism with Bruno, but we will see. So I have two more questions, and I'll start with start with this, which is, it's actually more of an opening than a question, but 
to let you tell people about what you're doing at The Athletic Toronto? Yeah, it's, it's a subscription, a local subscription site. We've got some great writers. We're mostly focused on the Raptors, Leafs, and Blue Jays right now, although Toronto FC's surprise run to the MLS Cup where they lost in extra time to a team that did not get a shot on goal in 120 minutes. Soccer, baby. Um, that was a crazy uh, game. That, I actually watched a portion of it. Yeah, I mean, it's not like Toronto FC dominated that game, but they were the better team, and they were the aggressors. And, I mean, that's soccer, and the result is the result. But it's sort of a shame that they couldn't find, you know, turn one of those three or four chances into a goal. Anyway, getting off track, you know, a lot of great writers from this market. You know, I'm not sure how much the names will matter to the crowd that will be listening to this podcast, but James Myrtle, who's like one of the, you know, the first hockey analytics writers, basically, and was working at a national newspaper, the biggest national newspaper at the Globe and Mail, is now our editor-in-chief. Sean Fitzgerald, who's former Canadian sports media sports writer of the year, is our managing editor and feature writer. All these guys are writing. John Lott, who's just this fantastic baseball writer slash photographer. Like, who even has these skills anymore? Who can, like, write and take, like, you know, professional photographs and do so from like the press box is contributing on the baseball end. The more subscribers we get, the more freelancers we can hire. Maybe we can beef up coverage. Blake Murphy and Holly McKenzie are both contributing regularly on the basketball side along with me. You know, they're two of my best friends in the industry, but I also think they do they bring completely different perspectives from each other and also from me to an extent and really give us a, a well-rounded view of the Raptors that I think there are lots of great Raptors writers in this marketplace, but I'm not sure you can get as many sort of nuanced perspectives about this team as you can get at The Athletic, and you can do it for The Athletic Toronto, and you can do it for a very affordable price. Just a, I don't know the price in front of me. This is like the second time I've done a podcast and not known the price. I should probably get on, get on that, but... It's considerably less than your Spotify account or your uh, Netflix account per month. So uh, if you care about Toronto sports uh, and you get you get access to your writing at the Warriors Athletic and the Bay Area and all the the Athletic Chicago, so you get a lot. And as the network grows, you get even more for your money. Yeah, I've used uh, the, I've used the word surplus value a lot with the athletic, and that's one of the benefits as it grows is that you get access to the whole thing. And it was something when I talked with the brass when I came on, it was one of those interesting ideas that I really liked with them. And you guys are doing amazing work in Toronto. Very very happy to have you. You, have you on board. And then the last question is both an easy question and a hard question. It's just if you had to guess right now, where do you see the season turning out? <laughs> Same place as last year. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I. I still think they're not beating a healthy Cavs team in the conference finals. I think it's possible that they take a few games off them again, depending on what sort of mode LeBron's in at the time and, and the Cavs are in. You know, we we all assumed a Cavs-Warriors final, and, you know, the Raptors are 0-3 against the Cavs, or 0-3 against the Cavs and 0-1 against the Warriors, and they haven't been blown out in any of those games, but I think those teams have extra gears, you know, and that's what elite talent does for you. And as much as I love DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry, this has been such an optimistic podcast. It's like, 
how do you crack that nut? You need a lot of luck. And, and you need good I, talent, and you need to yeah. get you need to get yourself there, and then you need a little bit of luck. And we we've seen that yeah. in the Eastern Conference playoffs. I mean that that is a, a part of this whole thing. And so yeah. if you get there, you have a chance. And I would love to see them fight for the number one seed. I don't. I think Cleveland would still be you know considerable favorites if they're healthy, even without yeah. it. But that would yeah. also confirm to the Raptors and their fans and and the team itself. It's like yeah, there's there we can we can do more and all of that. And no matter what though, they they've made themselves relevant, especially with their offense in a different way than last year. And defining success, I mean, they're they're in the mix, and being in the mix is a wonderful thing. Yeah, you know, I started covering this team regularly in 2008, so I covered some pretty average and below average teams and you know sometimes it's hard to find a new story when things are going this steadily well but I think that's also sort of a cliche that a bad team is more fun to cover than a good team like I think there are stories here I think this is a fun team that does it a bit differently than you know you might draw up if you were starting a franchise and it's working like it's a fa- it's it's Dwayne Casey uses an expression which I won't repeat. There are a million ways to skin out. Well, I will repeat it. He always says there's a million ways to, or a number of ways to skin a cat. Leading, you know, myself, Holly McKenzie, Zach Lowe, a bunch of people like, why are, why are you skinning cats? What's the point of skinning cats? Like, and why are there so many ways, and why are there so many ways to do it? Yeah. Like, why, why are we talking about this? But the point he's making is that there isn't just one way to do this. And I think we, to build a very, 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 very good basketball team, and I think we knew that, and the more we see examples of that at the top, at the upper level of things, you know, the teams that compete with your Golden States and your Clevelands that are just, not just, like they had to work to do it, but they're clusters of superstars. It should be inspiring and make teams aspire to not just collect assets in order to you know maximize their potential for superstars you gotta be open to the avenue that is open for you and the raptors have taken that and gone in an interesting direction and it is by and large work for them and that that's it's really interesting to me you know like it doesn't i've thought about it for so long that it stops being interesting but then it starts being interesting again it's sort of an it's really an amazing story compared to where they were three years ago at this time well yeah and the way they built this team is so unusual with with trades and everything else and it's it's a great show that you can do it in a lot of different ways you can make a successful team that looks different on the floor and you can build a team in different ways as well yeah for sure Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Great talking with you. Danny, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Eric Corrine for taking the time to come on. You can read him at The Athletic Toronto, and you can also follow him on Twitter at E. Corrine. That's E-K-O-R-E-E-N. Very talented writer. Love talking with him and fun to do a first-time podcast guest for me. And I like the Raptors as a story because they've as we talked about at the end, you know, they built a team in a very different way and they're fun to watch because they're so different. Every once in a while, you know, the mid-rangeness of it gets me a little bit, but they are an experience. They are something different and I'm so thrilled for their success. I wanted to take a little bit and talk about Craig Sager. This podcast was originally supposed to come out on Thursday, but because of the CBA announcement, my timing got all out of whack and 
that delay means that this came out after the news that that Craig Sager passed away at the age of 65. And Sager was a singular figure in the NBA community. And what stands out to me among many, many other things is just how great he was at his job. Being a sideline reporter is a very challenging thing. It's hard to do well, and Sager was absolutely excellent at it. And a big reason why was not only did he do a ton of work research to make sure that he had the right things to ask, but he also had a great rapport with these people, players, coaches, whoever else, to get the best out of them. His interviews with Greg Popovich were always something I looked forward to, and I genuinely don't look forward to sideline interviews that often just because the nature of them coaches often aren't aren't really going to bring much out. But Popovich and Sager had a great chemistry and Sager had that really with almost everybody. I think back to that great Kevin Garnett riff about him burning his suit and just the, the way that Sager imbued everything with so much life and so much enthusiasm and was able to take that kind of ribbing in, in such a good in such great humor. And that's something that is, is very different. And I also admire more than I can probably say the courage and inspiration that he provided with the way that he reacted to the medical diagnoses that he's had and the hardships that he's dealt with over the last few years. I don't talk about it very often and things like this, but uh, one of the biggest influences in my life was my grandfather who passed away when I was young. Actually, the sign-off that I use of, of Make It a Great Day is a tribute to him. And when I see somebody like my grandfather who went through cancer and fought through it so hard, it, it really does bring me a lot of inspiration. And I think it's Sager's example, and the, especially the, the way that he handled it at the ESPYs, but everything else, it, it serves as inspiration to take bad news and turn it into the best possible thing that you can. And I love that Sager was able to get back to work and continue doing the great job that he was already doing before. It was a, a privilege to be in the building when for some of those games when he was coming back and getting to be there when he covered his first NBA Finals, which was an absolutely wonderful moment. I never interacted with Craig Sager at all, personally, partially because he was always busy doing his work, but I have so much respect for him and the way that he approached not only his work, but also dealing with the people that were in his life, both professionally and personally. And there are few people in this business that you hear universally good things about, not just because of their their passing and as, as untimely and inspirational as Craig's was, but that was true throughout. I've been covering the NBA since 2009, and I have never heard a bad word in passing, in anger, or anything about Craig Sager, and that doesn't happen very often. And it's for a, a really good reason from everything I know, and so I want to echo the sentiments of everybody else and just my absolute condolences to his family, to the Turner family as well. And everybody who was lucky enough to have a part of Craig Sager in their life. And that includes the NBA family, of course, as well. And I hope that what we, what we take from this beyond 
the memories of, of all the great moments that he helped build for us, especially those of us in basketball, though I, I was really enjoyed the, the story that he was the first person to talk to, to Hank Aaron after his 715th home run. But to really take the idea of living with joy and taking the marrow out of life, which was a part of his SB speech, which really did stick with me. And I I hope to do that myself. I admit that it's I think it's harder for me in some ways than it is for Sager because Craig had this enthusiasm that imbued every element of his life. And I admire the crap out of that. It's not something that I have in the same way, but I encourage all of you to do the same. And I, I love the way that after the, or before the Warriors game today at Oracle, which happened right before I recorded this, that instead of being a moment of silence, it was a moment of joy. And I think that's what Craig Sager would have wanted. So Thanks so much for all of that, and I hope to take his example and live my life in in a fuller way and in a more joyous way. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, indifferent, you can reach out to me, NBA at gmail.com or at DannyLaRue on RealGM, L-E-R-O-U-X, because people often have problems with it, and I understand that. Also, a great way to support the show is through our sponsors, this week is is a great set. Sherry's Berries, berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. You can click the little microphone, Real GM, and you can find some great deals. The the six the six berries for $19.99, you can double it for $9.99. They're excellent. I had them delivered to my house and really enjoyed them. It was it was a highlight. And then also thrilled about the idea that you can either send an email to the aforementioned Danny LaRue MBA at gmail.com or hashtag my best NBA gift or hashtag my worst NBA gift, share your stories. The best ones will get $50 gift cards for Sherry's Berries and you can try them out yourself that way. It's won't take much time. I don't want a long, I don't want a monologue or anything like that, but just, you can say the gift, you can say anything else like that. Really do appreciate it. Of course, Audible. I've been listening to Trevor Noah's book. I've talked about the last few weeks. I'm almost done with it. I think I'm in the last hour. It's absolutely excellent, but they are a multitude of other things on various topics and you can check it out. Audible.com slash try now, and you can do a free trial and free audiobook. And then blue apron, fantastic food delivery service, three meals for free, including free shipping BlueApron.com slash real GM. You can also support the show as great as those are. You can also support the show by subscribing, downloading every episode, leaving a rating, leaving a review. Really do appreciate all of the support with everything like that. It's exciting to get closer to beginning a new year. And actually, the next episode is going to come out relatively quickly. Many of you will actually hear this episode after I've recorded the next one, but the current guess is it's not going to be too time sensitive. So I'm going to delay it a little bit, going to have family in town for the holidays. So try to put it out during the middle of that week of next week. That's the tentative plan. The fun of Real Gym Radio is I get a lot of autonomy with it, so I'll, I'll figure out what's best, but very excited about that. Those of you who know me know that I do not reveal guests ahead of time, and I'm very, very excited about it. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.